And uh, while you're turning there, raise your hands if you know about the show 24. Raise it. Not if you like it. I don't care if you like it. I know we've got some haters in here on the show 24, but if you at least know what it is, all right? I love that show. You can put your arms down. I love all glorious 194 episodes, and I've seen them all. And I'll be honest, I don't think it's the action that attracts me to the show or the executive decisions that's made. I I really am attracted to the the figure that is the guy. I like the dude in that show, Jack Bauer. So for the four of you in here who have never heard of the show 24 in the last decade, Jack Bauer is this agent in every episode, every season. He's this larger-than-life figure of masculinity that he's out there to save the world. He's trying to stop the virus or stop the bomb from going off or save thousands of people. Ten thousands of people, just a ton of people, the whole country, the whole world. And he will do it in 24 concise episodes. And I love it. And he'll do whatever it takes, even the hard stuff, the gritty stuff, the stuff that no one else will do. I mean, people will shoot at him. They'll be mean to him. They'll damage his reputation, and he doesn't care. He's going to fight through. He's going to grit through it. And every season, he'll blow up a few choppers. He'll throat punch some people. He'll do whatever. But by the end of every season, everybody is safe. And I love that. I don't think it's his ability to fight. And I don't think it's his ability to decide things that attract me to that masculine figure that I see in Jack Bauer. I think it's something else totally. I think it's something else altogether. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today, what it is that attracts me to that character. The good news for you and for me is I've attracted and drawn my wife into the world of 24 now. So I get, by God's glory and His grace, I get to watch all 194 episodes all over again. And I do it, man, with abated breath. It's like I've never seen it before. I'm so excited. But take that figure, take that Jack Bauer figure, and I'm going to juxtapose him with another figure in pop culture today. All right? The only reason we're even watching 24 is because we're coming off of an Everybody Loves Raymond Bender. We've seen every episode that you could see on that, right? And uh, yeah, he's funny. He's a goof. And uh, it's a prototypical sitcom, right? Where the only stable anchor part of the whole family is the wife. She's the only one that's got it put together. And the guy's just a goober the whole time. And he won't make hard decisions. And he won't own it. And he won't lead. And he won't do the hard things at all. Unless it's after golf, college football's not on, or the TV's broke. Something. Something has to make it easy for him to lead, or he simply will not lead. So I eventually got tired of that. I started to loathe that goober figure in there. And I just wanted him to muscle up. I wanted him to be a masculine man. I just wanted Jack Bauer, any episode, to punch the door in and run in and grab Ray Barone and pull him up and scream in his face on what it took to be a man. He just never did it. I never saw that masculinity intervention. Let's think about masculinity for a minute. It's something our culture, I think, has a very difficult time defining. It has a very difficult time measuring it as well. The Bible, however, does not. Every guy in here has a different image in their minds when it comes to what it takes to be masculine. And that's because largely we've all been brought up by different guys. Something's been modeled before us. Not all the time great, by the way. Something's been modeled before us on this is what it takes to be a man, a real man. It might be your dad, it might be a coach, or an uncle. 
But something, something fills in that blank for you. Maybe it's being good at sports. Maybe it's lifting a lot of weight, right? Maybe it's just beating people up. Maybe it's drinking beer. Maybe it's drinking the right beer. Have you noticed that? That's become a new measure of masculinity. Burping. Beating somebody up. Beating somebody up and taking their girlfriend. Growing a beard. That's a new sign of masculinity here recently. Growing a beard. Eating spicy food. That's a personal favorite of mine, right? Now all of a sudden you're not a man. You can't eat spicy food. Eating a lot of spicy food. Eating a lot of spicy food fast. There's several measures that we use as a society. And you'd think I'd be describing junior high right now. I'm not. I'm talking about last week. This is just what our culture uses. And one way our culture has come to define masculinity is how the man is in the home. How much of a boss he is. Have you picked that up in culture as well? A real man in a marriage is a guy that has his household in such a way where the woman never says anything back to him. He's the dude in charge. And he runs such a tight ship that she wouldn't dare even say anything back to him, but she just toes the line the whole time. But I will tell you, the number one reason, the number one reason for failure in marriages, now this is whether a marriage has already been going or whether it's trying to get off the ground, however you want to look at it, the number one reason for most failures in marriage is a lack of masculinity. It's a total lack of masculinity. So I think it becomes pretty vital for you and me now to kind of define what masculinity is and therefore know how to measure it. And I think it's important for everyone in this room because it already sounds like I'm preaching a dude message already, doesn't it? But it's important. Hey, if you're an unmarried young woman in here, or if you're a parent that has a young daughter coming up, it's important to know what the marks of masculinity are because you want your daughter and unmarried women, you want to marry a very masculine man, not the Dos Equis guy, right? You want to marry a guy who is truly, biblically masculine. We've got some unmarried young men in here. And we've got parents that have young boys coming up. It's important that we teach our young men, and it's important that we learn as young men what it takes to develop good biblical masculinity. We've got some married men in here. And today the canon is pointed straight at you and straight at me because we need to learn, men, how to be very masculine in our marriages. Ladies who are married, wives, It's important to know what grace looks like inside of a marriage where the gentleman, the man, the husband is trying to step out and learn how to be masculine, step out in his own masculinity. So I'd like to look at Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. This is the text that shows us Jesus much more clearly today. And like I've been saying week after week, whenever we see Jesus much more clearly, we will see marriage more clearly, right? Yes, this is a sermon series. Yes, today is on marriage or it's a sermon series on marriage, and this is a sermon on marriage, but it's actually, actually, if you get down to it, it's a series on Christ. It's a series on Jesus first, masculinity second. Jesus first, marriage second. Jesus first, role definition second. Jesus first, intimacy second. He helps us see everything else more clearly, and I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 22, and it starts off this way. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay. All right. For the husband is the head of the wife. I mean, that's a long passage, first of all. It's 11 verses. But that's early in the passage right there, right? For the husband is head of the wife. And that's where many of you started to trail off. That's where a lot of people trail off and end up in a wrong direction. Because this is a controversial passage. Might be one of the more controversial phrases in the Bible. One of them. It's highly, highly, highly misunderstood. It's a passage that's hated, trashed, hid behind, misconstrued. Women, I mean, women specifically are very tempted to be disgusted by a passage like this. And I think it's partly because they miss the beauty of the concept of what headship really is. It seems like a third world or an ancient world concept where the woman is stripped of all of her value and worth and independent expression. It almost seems like submitting to someone else makes the woman lesser. Sub seems oppressive. Men are tempted to be very prideful with this passage, very demanding with it, because they miss the sheer weight, the sheer truth of what it means to be ahead. So now, as controversial as this is, I do want to say this. It's there. It's there. The husband is the head of the wife. And it's elsewhere in the Bible, too. It's real. It's there. So we don't vote on this. It's not really up for debate. Right? We're not going to put this in some cultural blender and mix it up and pour it out and say that it means something totally different than it does. We're not going to read through it as fast as we possibly can because we're embarrassed of it as a bunch of Christians and then say at the very end, well, maybe Paul didn't really mean it. We're not going to do that either. I just don't think we take what God says and then say he didn't say it. It's here. But I'd like to look at it. Because I think for men, understanding what headship is, is the biggest key to understanding what true masculinity is. And men, if you get good masculine headship in your marriage, your marriage will flourish. It will be functional. It most certainly will. And women, I think you'll understand that when headship is clearly taught, and you understand what good masculine headship is, I don't think you're going to feel oppressed. I don't think you're going to feel stifled. I think you're going to feel liberty and freedom come to you. It's a beautiful concept. Headship. I mean, it's really simple. It's not the man being boss over his wife, first of all. It's man and wife coming together in marriage, listen to me, totally equal. Totally equal in all value, weight, glory, and image. Man and woman are both made in the image of God. They're together, yet there's distinction in role. There's a distinction in their roles. 
The big idea is the head has responsibility. You men as a head have a responsibility to cover, to protect, to guard, to lead, to lay down your life. Does it sound like a wedding vow yet? This is your goal. This is your mark as being the head. And the big idea ultimately for you and me is that means that we are responsible for our marriages. And we hate that. Our flesh hates that. Our flesh as men hate being responsible. We want to be Ray Barone about the whole thing. You take care of that. Hey, that seems like a wifey thing. So you take care of the kids. You take care of the kitchen. You take care of all of that. And it seems like the man's calling in today's culture is to evade responsibility. We, we don't really get that as well as we ought to get today. But the funny thing is, is men understand this in just about every other institution except for marriage. Think about it in the business world. A company, three quarters in a row, starts losing profit. They start having to pull stuff off the shelf. There starts to be some antsy stockholders. Guess who loses his job or her job? The CEO, the head. The thing is, is there could be a million different things that could have gone wrong with the business, right? There could have been several things. It could have been inflation. The, the country could be in wartime. There could be a lot of things that would affect that company. Does not matter. The responsibility leans on the head. Same thing with countries. Presidents, prime ministers, kings. So much can go wrong. Might not have anything to do with the nation's leader. Doesn't matter. Let's bring it closer to home. What are there, over a dozen coaches now on Division I football teams? If you count what's up in the box, right? So much can go wrong. There could be sanctions on your football team because of the last coach. Your blue chip athlete could have had his ankle blown out. You can start racking up losses that should have been wins. And guess who gets fired? The coach or the AD. Why? Because they're the head. They're responsible. The weight is on their shoulders. Men, we are responsible for the health of our marriage. That's on us. When there is failure, it's on us. Listen, I'm responsible for the health of my marriage, right? I'm responsible for that, regardless of not whether I like that. Regardless of the fact that I, I'd be tempted to bring a big, long list and say, yeah, but look at all these things. Look at all these things that really kind of let me escape the responsibility of having this health on my head. Look at all these things that don't really have anything to do with me. Look at the big, fat mess that is my marriage. It doesn't really have much to do with me. Look, it's not my bad. It's not me. It's on you, and it's on me. It's important for us. It's important for us because when it all gets boiled down, I am responsible. Listen, unmarried women in here, look for a guy. Look for a guy who's not irresponsible. Look for a guy who's not trying to evade responsibility all the time, always around messes, owning none of them. Wouldn't be a good bet for you. An irresponsible man will never be a masculine man. Let me say that again. An irresponsible man will never be a masculine man. I would, I'd hate for the day with one of my beautiful daughters bringing home a dude, right, that they have a fancy for, and he's irresponsible. And he comes in all acting like Ray Barone, you know? I'm going to turn into... Jack Bauer, if, you, if I see any Ray Barones, I'm going to eat his head because I'm just not going to have that. An irresponsible man will never be a masculine man. So you see, we as husbands, we are the covenant head. 
Now, it's the first time I've used this word today. A covenant head. A covenant that is sealed in a wedding ceremony before all, before God and before company, right? And now, without getting really deep, I'm not going to get really deep into what a covenant is because I could. I could spend hours up here. It's a very deep concept. But very superficially on the surface, it's not a contract. It's actually more than a contract, okay? A contract is set up to protect your interests, to protect your vested interests, to hedge your bets, right? A covenant is set up for her benefit, for her interest. It's different. Contract for you, covenant for her. That's how it works. It's for the other person. You as her covenant head, you become a protector, a nurturer, a sacrificer. This is your role. This is your responsibility. And this is what distinguishes you from other men, and you're glad for it too. This is what, and this is why you saw it in that passage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Because you, man, are the covenant head of your own marriage. Wives don't submit to me, but my wife does. You don't submit to your own dads more than you do your husband. And I'll tell you, being in and out of marriage counseling with different couples, a lot of times there is a big wedge in the marriage because the wife hears more of a volume and weight to her own father's voice than he does, than she does her husband's voice. And that causes problems. Here it says right here, wives submit to your own husbands. That's because he is the covenant head of that relationship. The responsibility is on his shoulders. So let me just explain this a little bit in a different way to paint maybe a bigger picture for you so you understand where I'm coming from. Jesus too is a covenant head. Man, that's something that we have in common with Christ. Jesus also is a covenant head of a different covenant, a much better covenant. It's even a marriage covenant when you think about it. Not a marriage between person and person, but a marriage between God, a cosmic marriage between God and mankind. A supernatural marriage, a better marriage, an ultimate marriage even. And because of this, Jesus is the head. Jesus is the head of this covenant, and he has taken a role on himself as what? Nurturer? Guardian? Protector? And yes, he did. He laid down his life. Ultimate sacrificer. This is why we see in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ and the church. It's him drawing the link, the line between our marriages and the picture that it paints of the ultimate marriage, which is God and mankind. And he took responsibility, Jesus did, because he is the head. Listen, the church is not the head. Jesus is the head. We are co-heirs with Jesus, but we're not co-heads with Jesus. Jesus does not submit to the church. The church submits to Jesus. Luke, why are you saying all that? Why is that important? I've talked to local pastors here who would totally disagree with what I'm preaching right now. I've talked to pastors here locally that will rock right out the door before I've even gotten this far because they see no distinction in role. They think there's equivalency in role between man and wife. Now, what I believe, as I've already said, and what I believe the Bible teaches, is that there's an equivalency of weight and glory and identity and calling and value. I believe that all of that is equal. I believe that the Bible teaches that. But I do believe that there's distinction in role. We see this in the Trinity very clearly. Equal weight, glory, holiness to the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. But there's distinction in role. Read the New Testament. It's there. A lot of Christianity does not believe this. They believe that there's no differentiation in role. There's no such thing as submission because there's really no such thing as headship. And this thing we read in Ephesians 5 is nothing more than a cultural artifact, something not very applicable to today for us. 
And so they struggle with this. This is why some churches will not change the vows at the end of a service. Listen to it. Next time you go to a wedding service, listen to the vows at the end. A lot of times the man will have vows to his wife, and they flip around and go to the wife. She has the exact same vows to her husband, as if the charge isn't any different. There's a differentiation in role. The charge ought to be different. If you've ever been to a wedding we've done here, I've told, I've told the man and the wife different vows. They've repeated different vows because there's a different charge. There's a head, there's a helpmate, there's a different role. And we're going to talk about helpmating later on. We're going to talk about that in another sermon. We'll spend a good amount of time on role definition and what it means. But this is why a lot of people don't see a difference. We do, we see a difference. Listen, if there's no difference in role between man and wife in a marriage, what picture does that paint of a, of a bigger marriage? That there's no distinction between Christ and his bride, the church. It's a dysfunctional picture, and it's against all we know about biblical theology. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.3. It should be up on the screen. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So here we see something really clearly where Jesus, who has a head, which is God as Father, right, is actually head over us. He's a head over us in a better covenant. He's a head over us in a bigger covenant, right? So what does all this mean? If you boil everything I've said up to this point so far, what does it mean? It means that just as Jesus did not devalue his bride by being head, just as he did not devalue or strip the worth away from his church, so men, we do not strip the worth and the value away from our bride. We don't devalue them because we're ahead. It means we're not their boss. We're their lover's servant. We develop. We nurture. We enhance. We don't stifle or oppress. It means that Jesus, just as Jesus did not come to be boss, we do not come to be boss. Just as he took responsibility for a mess that was even outside of his boundaries, we two men, we take responsibility for a mess that is a little bit outside of our backyard, if you know what I mean. We take responsibility for that because we're the covenant head, and that's on us. It means that just as Jesus took responsibility for actions beyond his, men, we too take responsibility for actions beyond our own. Do you see the girth, the width to this calling? Because this is the gospel. Jesus is our covenantal head who took responsibility for our mess. He took responsibility for your mess and mine. He stood there and he bore our sins on his body when they were pointed straight at us. And he didn't deflect it. He didn't cancel it out. He absorbed all of it. He took it all upon himself, down to the last drop. The fullness of God's punishment for sin on earth was pointed and emptied all the way down to the last drop on Jesus, who substituted himself for you and me down to the last second. He did that. We were the mess, and he was masculine. He was masculine. He loves us. He took responsibility. He owned the marriage. He led the marriage. And now he protects us. He develops us, washes us, charges us, redefines us, sanctifies us, fights for us, covers us. He's a good head. He's a good covenantal head. He's more than just a model for us. I hope you see that. So women, what I hope you see in this, real quickly, as a side note, is with Jesus' responsibility with the church, I don't see a picture of the church being stifled. I don't see a picture of the church being oppressed. 
I don't see the church's value or worth being stripped away or discounted. Neither will you see that with a properly executed masculine headship model in your marriage. You won't see it either. Not if it's done well. Not if it's done well. Men, what measures our masculinity isn't something goofy like your decline bench press or your ability to take a gun apart or gut a deer. None of that defines masculinity. Your ability to take responsibility defines your masculinity. Listen clearly. Masculinity is taking responsibility. Masculinity is taking responsibility. In our marriages, masculinity, true masculinity, is taking responsibility. Therefore, Jesus is the most masculine man who has ever lived. Without ever padding up for a football game, without ever getting in a bar fight, right? It's the most masculine man who has ever lived. It's taking responsibility for the mess around us. It has nothing to do with you and bringing order, and cha- order to the chaos and bringing beauty to what was dead and bringing life to it in your marriage. That's what masculinity is. So listen very clearly. If there is a crack in your marriage, if there is a crack in your marriage, it's on you. It's on you. You're responsible. In some way, shape, or form, you trace it back, it's on your shoulders. You're the one that's responsible. So you need to take responsibility. You need to own it. You need to grow that thing. You need to lead it. Listen, this is where our first Adam failed in the garden. But actually, our second Adam in Jesus actually did very well in it. Okay? The first Adam. Real goofy situation. She's standing there in the garden. He's standing there in the garden. God comes and says, hey, has this conversation of, I told you not to eat the fruit. You ate the fruit. Now we're three standing here. What do you see Adam doing? He's acting like Ray Barone. Whining, pointing, blaming. It's the woman you gave me. Look, it's her. It's not me. He's avoiding responsibility. He's taking that easy way out. You know, there's this great quote I love. I put it on Facebook, but I brought it in this thing as well. I can't get enough of it. It's Justin Buzzard. He says this in his book, Date Your Wife, which is out there on the table. When Adam first looked at Eve, he fell in love. This time, Adam looked at Eve and withheld his love. He stood still, abandoning his wife, his calling, and his manhood. I agree with Justin. Men, we do the same thing. We abandon our wives when we sit there and we are not very masculine. We don't take responsibility. And we're forcing her to take responsibility. This shouldn't be her burden to take. We're abandoning our calling. And we are most certainly abandoning our manhood. We're not very masculine in that moment. So, how do we practically do this? We're dudes. We like practical steps. So how practically can we see better leadership, more masculine leadership in our marriages? All right? Now, you could probably already predict the answer if you've been here longer than a few weeks. We do believe that it goes to the gospel, and I'm going to preach from that aspect of the whole thing, but I believe there's three primary areas that we already find our lives in or saturated in that we can do a better job of leading in a masculine way as a proper head in our marriage, and that is in gospel, that is in community, and that is in mission. And we do use those three terms all the time, ad nauseum. They're good, helpful shoeboxes for us to fit things in, but we do believe that we are a people by the gospel for the gospel. We are here as a community of people by the power of the gospel, and we are here as a community of people for the propagation of the gospel. Okay? So this is an easy way for us to look at it. I'll show you what I mean. Let's look at gospel. 
Do you know what your bride believes? I mean her theology. Do you know what her theology is? Who is she listening to? Who is she reading? Who is forming her ideas, her beliefs about God? Did you know that that was important for you to know? What about when your wife fritzes out? <laughs> right? You're in a tense moment and she's woo! She goes crazy, and you're like, oh, what's going on? In that moment, whenever you're looking at it, whether it's in fear or she's got shame or she's just is having a control fit or whatever it might be, do you know how to apply the gospel to it, the story of a living, dying, and living again God? Do you know how to do that? What do you mean, Luke? What does that mean? I mean, are you able to spot the areas of the gospel story where your bride is not able to believe? Are you able to see the thing and go, you know what? She's looking for control. She's fritzing out because she does not have control over this whether it's the household or the kids or the marriage or the schedule or the finances, it's control that is escaping and she flips out. She loses it. Are you able to talk to her about how God is always in control and he proved it by an empty tomb? When things looked its bleakest, are you able to do that? Are you able to lead her in the areas of image, how she sees herself by the gospel? Or are you just aloof? Just checking the scores on your phone. Are you just leaving her alone to figure it out? Did you know that that was your role? This is your responsibility as the covenant head. Think about this. The snake got in, the stupid snake in the garden, was tinkering with Eve's theology with Adam standing right there. Theology, ideas about God, understanding about God, right? She was changing and reforming her ideas about God, not because of what her husband was saying, but because of what the enemy was saying. And he was just standing there. I don't know what he was doing. He was being silent. He was abandoning his post, abandoning his manhood at that moment. Listen, you should be in touch with what your wife is reading, listening to. You should have a good understanding of what her theology is. I love walking in my bedroom and seeing a good biblical, gospel-centered book on my wife's bedside, on her bedside table right there. I love that. I love seeing that. You know? Hey, listen. Get good stuff to your family. Get good books to your wife. Lead your wife through good books. Not all books at the Christian bookstore are good, by the way. (laughs) Side note. I think only like nine of them are now. But be careful about what you go through, but go through something. Lead your wife. On the next date night you have, on your next date night, Ask your wife how she's doing with theological beliefs. What is she struggling with in her understanding? What part of the Bible does she not like to read? And why does she not like to read it? What idea about God really bugs her? Where did that come from? What can you say to that? Have these conversations. Because ultimately, this is your job. It's not mine. It's not my job. Husband, pastor, head, It's not my job. This is your job. If one of your wives come up ever and asks me what the gospel answers to some painful thing that she's been carrying around with her whole life, I'm going to look at you. I'm going to look at you. That's your responsibility, Pastor. That's something that's on your shoulders. So when you see this attitude rise up, a deep fear, a depression, what are you doing about that? Are you helping her? Are you serving her? Are you abandoning her? Are you leaving her alone to figure all of that out on her own? The shame is on you if you're doing that. Because you can complain all you want. It's realistically, it's on your shoulders, just as it is mine in my own marriage. Right? Let's look at community. 
community. Now, when I say community, some of you that don't come here very often might immediately think a road with a bunch of houses on it, right? What we understand community to be is a gathered people that are there because of the power of the gospel. Jesus coming, dying, being raised up, going up to God at his right hand, interceding for you and me, and collecting a church as he builds a kingdom, right? We are God's community. So how does this look for you in your marriage? Do you know who your wife is connecting to relationally? Who in your community, whether it be a missional community or this gathering or some little pocket of friends that you're around, who is it that your wife really gets a lot out of that relationship? Why does she get that? Are you providing more time for her to to develop and blend into that community and be nurtured by it? Who is it that she wants to stay home when she thinks about them being there? You know what I'm saying? Is that person going to be there? Mm, I'm feeling kind of sick. Who is that person? Why? Why does she want to stay home? What's going on? Is there unforgiveness? Is there bitterness? These are important questions. Is your wife walking around with a bitter unforgiveness in her heart? Covenant head, that's your job. That's your job. Luke, I thought forgiveness was her thing. That's her heart issue. No, friend, that's your issue. There is unforgiveness. It is healed in the heart when she does forgive, but you have to lead her there. You got to lead her there. That's your responsibility. Your responsibility. Also, let's look at just leading into community. Are you leading your marriage into community or is your wife doing that? Typically in America, 60% of the church of American, uh, American churches are made up of females. But also typically, and I'm painting with a very broad brush here, typically in America, it's the wife that picks the church, right? And she does it based on relational connection. This is what studies are showing right now. It's based on relational connection. What kind of women's ministry do they have? Do all my friends already go there? They're doing that because they're obviously not getting it at home, right? They're not getting it with Christ. They're not getting it with their husband. So they're going to try to get it in the church expression. So the husband ends up doing this thing, this Ray Barone thing of, hey, you find a church. Whenever you find one, I'll just come and see if I like it, right? But studies show that there's two ways that men either return to a church or choose a church. Number one, it's the guy preaching. Number two, it's the way he preaches. Simple as that. So if a woman chooses a church because she likes the familial connection, and then the guy floats in, you know, he's lucky to get out of bed that morning, and he comes in, and the pastor's up there flopping around. He's like George McFly, and he's not connecting with the pastor. Well, then, hey, kickoff is always at one. You know what I'm saying? He won't come back. And now you have 60% of the church being made up of females. A lot of that is women that are in church services without their husbands. Make no mistake. That's what you're looking at. Are you the one guiding your bride into the right community? Are you the one doing that? Or have you delegated that out and farmed that out to your wife? Is she trying to do a real good impersonation of you as the covenant head? Are you placing a burden on her shoulders that she's really not supposed to be carrying? You know, I want to brag on somebody in here. This is really quick. I didn't get the permission, okay? I want to brag on Mike Colum. He didn't know I was going to say this. When they first moved here, he found us online on a website, right? And, and he liked enough of what he read to where he, he came and met me at a laundromat, right? I'm handing out quarters, handing out coffee, doing a little evangelism. He comes, he's all ready for work, looking real intimidating and really smart. And he comes up and he says, hey, I like what I read on the, on, online. I like it. I agree with a lot of it. But I want to interview you to make sure it's okay for me to bring the rest of my family, 
Do you see that? I'm thinking, yes, yes, let's go. Interview me. Let's make this happen. Because even if he didn't like what he said, I knew that wherever he went, he would be in control of understanding what the theology of the church is. Is my family safe here? He was leading his family unit. He was leading his marriage. He was being a good covenant head. Very excited about that. Very excited about that. Listen, on your next date night, ask your bride how she's doing with her forgiveness and her bitterness in community. Does she have any? Is she struggling with anybody? Is she struggling with just the general idea of community? What's the big deal about community? Is she struggling with some aspect of it? And then ask yourself a really hard question of who's really leading that thing anyway? Are you putting that burden on her? Or are you doing it yourself? Real quickly, I want to look at mission. I don't have as much on this. But do you know what your wife's dreams are? How has God put her together, assembled and engineered your wife? What kind of calling is on her life to meet the city for the sake of the city and for the glory of God? What dreams compose who she is? Now, I, I know I get it. I'm married to one, right? I'm married to a woman. And so a lot of times the kids come along and the homeschool starts and this happens and this happens. And it feels like who they used to be starts to kind of be compressed. And now they're just a placeholder, wife, mom. You know? That dream is still alive inside of her. That's there for you, covenant head, masculine covenant head, to unpack, to work out, to draw out, to exegete out, and to pull out, and to really develop in your wife. What is she called to do? Are you dreaming bigger than your wife for that? Or again, is she on her own? It's hard for us to think of our wives like that, isn't it? It's because we're selfish, man. She's just wife. She's just her. I don't know what dream she has. You ought to. That's your job. That's your calling. Now listen, men, this is our mentality. It is our mentality. We can give the responsibility to somebody else. And it's especially easy for us to do in our marriages. Some of you are already thinking, and I know you started digging back immediately as soon as I started to say how much of a responsibility it was of yours. You're thinking, and you might not ever say this out loud, and good for you if you don't. But Luke, Luke, I get this, and I'm taking notes, right? I'm taking notes, but you don't understand. I'm married to a crazy woman. (laughs) I mean, she's hormonal, and she's got issues, and she's got baggage, and she is, you know... I mean, some of the responsibility is on her. She's crazy. Listen, nurture crazy. Love crazy. Protect crazy. Hey, if anyone married a crazy bride, Jesus Christ married a crazy bride. And he laid down his life. Right? Our mentality, men, is to give the responsibility to somebody else, which is not masculine. Not masculine at all. And just hope that they'll take care of it. So we'll check our kids into a children's ministry. Maybe they'll teach my kids how to read the Bible well. Maybe they'll memorize scripture because of whatever's going on in those classrooms with all the colors and toys. Right. We'll find a good women's ministry because maybe they'll fix my wife. (laughs) Because I don't know what's going on. Right. We'll find a church with a good Bible-based preacher. That way my wife learns and I don't have to 
teacher myself. But listen, and as good as all three of those things might be, they're supplemental. The responsibility is on you. On you. You're the responsible one. Now this is the predictable point where men shift gears. And ladies, tell me if I'm not right here. Where we start trying to fix things. All right, I get it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. I'm rolling up the proverbial sleeves, about to get manly on this thing because I'm a masculine man and I'm going to fix this marriage. I'm going to give you a little bit of a caution here, okay? I'm going to give you some cautions here and then I'm done. Listen, unless you understand that Jesus took responsibility for a marriage where you benefited, you will never understand. You will never understand what it means to take responsibility for your own marriage at her benefit. It'll be lost on you. It won't be driven by the gospel, right? Unless you see Jesus as your covenant head in which he paid a deep price for your benefit, you will never understand how to be a good masculine head where she benefits even at your cost. You'll never get that. Unless you understand and grasp and get your arms around Jesus' masculinity for your profit, you will never, ever, ever, ever understand what it means to be masculine for her profit. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have to be driven by the gospel. All these examples are being driven by the gospel. What we would like to do is say, I'm going to employ all those things. I'm going to ask all those questions that you said ask. I'm going to get involved and get my fingers all over this, Luke, and then maybe it will fix my marriage. No, that's not what's going to happen. God fixes your marriage. The thing is, is as men, we like to fix what we break, don't we? Right? We break it, we fix it. We think on our own power and our own wisdom, we can fix what we've broken. The truth is, and the good news of the gospel is, is God fixes what man breaks. God is the one that fixes what we break. The first Adam broke it apart. So God comes as a second Adam and puts it back together and restores it. Right? We gumped it up. And he comes and it restores it. It's a very beautiful thing. You know, grace is coming to us and the person of Jesus. And we don't deserve Jesus. We deserve absence. That's what we deserve in all of this. But he came. He came anyway. And he secured a marriage. A marriage where he was a masculine covenant head. So that we could eat, live, breathe, and image, man, what it means to be a masculine covenant head. Men, if you don't understand, and if you are not driven by the gospel message to bring repair to your own marriage, then you will never understand masculinity. It'll be something that will always evade you. And you'll try to find superficial, cultural things to paste your own life, to flex your muscles and say, I am a real man. That's what will happen. You'll continue to abandon your post, your manhood, and your calling. You'll continue to do that and then try to boss and demean and stifle your wife. And you'll keep trying to fix it on your own with quick little points and tricks and lists and books. Those drive me crazy. You'll try to fix it with those things, and it's equivalent of slapping a cheesy bandage on a big gaping wound. You have got to be driven by the gospel. The story of what Jesus Christ has done for you and what he has done for me. You don't do these things so that God likes you more or loves you more. You do these things because you were already deeply loved. You don't develop a covenant marriage so that God is more pleased with you. You develop a covenant 
masculine marriage because he already loved you through another masculine covenant marriage. So it's important for us. So men, I would just entreat you. I would appeal that you fix your marriages. I would appeal that you pursue masculinity with great intention. But you don't do it so that Jesus loves you more. You don't do it so your wife will stop nagging you. You do it because Jesus has already loved you deeply. As a way of thanksgiving. As a way of echoing what he has done. Imaging what he has done. Painting a portrait of what he has done. That's why you do it. And women, my charge is a little different to you. Right? Because I know how hard it is. I mean, my beautiful bride, she does the best she can when I foul out on being very masculine. I don't do a very good job all the time on what it means to be masculine. And she's got a lot of grace for me. As a helpmate, she's developing that in me. She's showing me where I'm not acting masculine. And she does it in a very beautiful way. And I'm excited about in the weeks to come talking about helpmating and the role of the woman and what it means. It's very, very important for us as a church. It's very important for you in your marriage. Right? But listen, if you're here, I'm finishing with this, and then I'm going to pray. If you're here, and you are not in this covenant marriage that I speak of, this grand, this grand cosmological one where God loved His people, came to earth looking like us, sounding like us, eating among us, telling stories but not acting like us, dying on the cross for you and me. If you're not a part of that, you are greatly pursued. He is greatly pursuing you right now. He was masculine even though you were a mess. I mean, you are a total mess. I know that because I am too. You are a scandalous, sleazy mess. I know that because I am too. We're all messes. We are all total messes. And he is masculine. And he took responsibility. And he stepped in the fray. And he owned it. And he led that marriage. And he sealed a beautiful covenant where he was the head for our benefit, for our profit. And he's, he's here to reach you today. He's here to graft you into this beautiful thing that we call the family, this beautiful thing that we call community because of the power of his gospel for the sake of his gospel. So some of you, some of you, earnestly, some of you earnestly need to do some work with God. And what we always say, and we say this every week, that what that means is it means turning from your own sins, especially the one where you try to earn God's favor, right? We never think of that as a sin, do we? We always think of sins are the things that we do wrong, the things we do incorrectly, the things that make God mad at us. Did you know that trying to earn His favor is just as much of a sin? It's law and it's legalism, and He's asking you to turn from that as well. Turn from your own ability. Turn from your own power and wisdom and might of fixing yourself. Because what that does is it says, Jesus, what you've done is very good, but it wasn't good enough. And as I always like to say, it is equivalent to hanging yourself on a cross right next to him because you believe that his power is insufficient to heal, to save. So you turn from your sin and you also turn from your ability to try to cleanse and sanitize yourself. That's what he's asking you to do today. So we're going to give you that opportunity. As the team comes up, are they up here? Where are they? Go ahead and stand with me. I want to pray with you.